Hello, and welcome back to our study of 1 Thessalonians. I'm happy that you're joining us, and I pray that this time together is encouraging and challenging and uh, helps you to understand and appreciate the scriptures more. And before we begin, why don't we begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we acknowledge that it is the Holy Spirit who has inspired these scriptures and that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to, uh, to hear your voice through them. That they would not just be words, that this wouldn't be an academic exercise, but that it would be uh, a time of encountering you and being with you. And so we ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would, uh, would intervene through all the barriers that we might have to hearing truth through these scriptures, whether they be emotional or spiritual, um, that you would help us to be receptive to what you're communicating to each one of us through these passages of the scriptures. And we ask this through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the, the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. So we've come to chapter 4. But, of course, uh, we always want to put everything in context. We don't you just read a chapter all by itself, right? But that it's, um, so it's, it's in the context of the whole letter. And in the first three chapters, uh, Paul has, has completely reviewed his relationship with the Thessalonians, starting with his arrival there from Philippi and how he'd been beaten there and uh, their reception of him, how hard he worked among them, what he preached, what his motivation and behavior was with them, as well as what uh, he didn't do and, and what his motivations weren't. Uh, his concern with them after he left, uh, the sending of Timothy to be able to find out how things are going, and Timothy coming back with a good report, uh, and him rejoicing and being glad about that. And finally, chapter 3 ends with a prayer. <clears throat> Uh, Paul says, uh, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men as we do to you. So the Lord, uh, he's praying that the Lord will increase their ability to love and uh, that their love would abound. Uh, you know, you think you like having an abundance of love for one another and for all people. Right, so they're supposed to, you know, they have, like if you can get the image of this is what Paul's praying for is that you'd be overflowing with love. And then he continues with, so that he may establish your hearts. Right, overflowing with love so that he could establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. Now, holiness is a really important word that uh, he's going to talk a lot about in chapter 4. Uh, and he says, before the, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. What a, what a beautiful image, right, of being, um, being unblameable in holiness, being able to rejoice, not having any shame or guilt at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, but being filled with joy um, at his coming with all of his saints. And so chapter 4 begins with, this, uh, this thing. He, sa he says, finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, 
you should do so more and more. You know, sometimes when I read sentences in the scriptures or in the, um, in the catechism, I have to uh, break them apart into the little phrases. Sometimes, you know, you remember when you were in grammar school and you had to, um, what was it called, when you had to, like, graph a sentence? You know, you break it up and you put that, like, you know, this is a prepositional phrase and this is a... Diagram a sentence. Diagram a sentence. I love doing all. that. Yes, okay, see, she's, uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, so you had to diagram a sentence and, and basically what you ended up with was, like, you have a noun and you have a verb. That's your basic sentence. And then you had, you know, direct objects and indirect objects and all those things. And so sometimes I have to do that. And so, um, so, so false noun and verb is we ask and we urge, right? We ask, we is the subject, right? Ask and urge. Some translations say beg, right? And exhort. Uh, it's always good to read things in different translations because it's kind of interesting, you know, this is all written in, the, in Greek and then translated into English. And depending on the translators and what they're trying to emphasize, they can bring out different aspects. And so when you read different translations, sometimes it's fascinating because it's sort of like, wow, how can these be so different, right? Or sometimes they just have like that, they just use a word that, that is more, um, that, that you can be more receptive to, right? So I actually like that, that idea of begging and exhorting. Uh, and so this is, this is like Paul, is, is, he's just prayed for them, and, and his prayer ended with this idea that Christ is coming back, which we're going to revisit at the end of this chapter. And then he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that, and so, so it, it, he, you notice he hasn't gotten to what he's asking and urging yet, right? But he is saying, as you learned from us. Now, he just spent the first three chapters of this book talking about how he behaved towards them and how he was blameless and how he wasn't led by greed. He wasn't led by, you know, trying to win them over by pride and, and flattering them and all of that stuff. He says, he says, I want, as you learned from us. So Paul, again, is pointing to himself and saying, and, and, and to Timothy and Silas as well, and saying, we are the example in this, right? That this isn't detached at all from, from how we live. We're not teaching you something that we don't practice ourselves. And, and so he says, how you ought to live and to please God. And so really, that's the, uh, that's the thing, right? He says, we're asking and urging you to live and to please God, how you ought to live to please God. And then he says, you know, as you are doing, so he's acknowledging, hey, listen, you guys are doing really good, right? You're, you're living in a way that's pleasing to God. You're living the way that you ought to. But then he says, you should do that more and more, which is really interesting, right? Because what he's saying is, there's always room for improvement, right? That this path to perfection, this path to holiness, this path to sanctification is not, you know, like a one and done thing, right? 
it is this it takes a whole lifetime it's a process it's a cooperation with the work of the holy spirit in our lives it's a constant surrendering and dying and and uh, being honest and struggling through things and that is the path to holiness and sanctification and so paul is saying listen you guys are doing awesome do it more and more right that's, and we're going to we're going to find that phrase a little bit later on in a different context. He says, "For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus." And I, I can remember in one of these uh, chapters we kind of reviewed. We might have done it last time. Uh, we reviewed like it's it's kind of important to notice what Paul um, is instructing. Uh, you know what he says he instructed them because he's he like really gained insight into. What was Paul proclaiming when he proclaimed the gospel? What was he teaching, right? And so we looked at, uh, you know, like the, the whole idea that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mentioned, uh, that the resurrection of the dead, the crucifixion of Jesus, the, you know, the, uh, the need to love one another. You know, I mean, like there's lots of things in that uh, initial proclamation of the gospel. Even though Paul was with them for a very short time, he obviously covered a lot of ground. And he says, now, I want you to remember the instructions we gave you while we were with you. So Paul is going to give them a review of what he's already taught them. And it's important to note this little phrase, through the Lord Jesus. Now, we're going to we're gonna, uh, highlight that a little bit more. But the, the thing that Paul is saying is, this wasn't my instruction to you, Right? This wasn't my opinion on, uh, you know, what it means to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, but that it was really um, the Lord Jesus speaking through Paul to the Thessalonians by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, for this is the will of God. If you've ever asked yourself, what is the will of God, right? What is the, the utmost, the most important thing, right? The thing that is, uh, you know, like, in spite of our circumstances and, and situations like, you know, uh, culturally, uh, time-wise, uh, universally, like, throughout the whole world, you, you know, Paul is saying, like, there's, there's a will of God that is true for all of us, and at the same time, true for us as individuals. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is an interesting word because it means being set apart. It means being, um, you know, like, like uh, the vessels in the temple, or for that matter, vessels at the church, are set aside. They are sanctified. They're not used for anything else except for the glory of God, right? And so you wouldn't uh, have a pizza party on an altar because the altar is set aside, it is sanctified, it is holy, it is a holy place. It is there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is for the worship and glorification of God. And so Paul is saying, we too have been set aside, we too have been sanctified, right? And, and at the same time, we are being sanctified, like we, we have been sanctified because we have entered into Christ through baptism, but we are also in the process of sanctification. And so, uh, sanctification and holiness go hand in hand, 
Uh, um, and so, so this is what the Lord desires for us. He says, and, and you notice, oh, let's just back up. You notice this ends with a colon, right? And a colon means Paul's about to make a list, right? And so, uh, so you'll notice that he has four sentences or, or uh, phrases that begin with that, right? This is the will of God, your sanctification, okay? That you abstain from fornication. So what he's doing is uh, highlighting what this means, what this sanctification means. Now, uh, as, as we begin this little section, it's really important that we are aware of Paul's circumstances in, in this situation that he's preaching to. And so he, uh, in throughout the Roman Empire, there's a, there is a lack of what we would call morality. It's very similar, I think, to the situation that we find ourselves in. And so we find ourselves in a culture where, um, you know, where sexuality and homosexuality and cohabitating and uh, casual sex and all of that stuff is completely acceptable uh, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, right? And, and I think a lot of Christians, and I, I, I would dare to say um, a lot of Catholics, have kind of bought into that, right? And I think it's from this lack of uh, understanding the biblical teaching. And so, so when Paul starts this sanctification, he's not talking in some, you know, uh, you know, culture where there's a, you know, a, the like a Victorian thing going on, right? That's like that's that's how uh, our our morality gets, uh, um, uh, uh, you know. I don't even know what the word is, but anyway, categorized as some Victorian repressive age, and it's like, no, 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 this is uh, this has been the biblical um, teaching about morality from the very beginning, and it's based in creation, it's based in our maleness and our femaleness, it's based in uh, covenant relationships of marriage and what marriage is. I mean, like, these things are important and beautiful and profound and incredible, and it's what works, it's what we're created for, and that's what we have to learn how to do, is communicate these things in the truth and beauty and goodness that they are. I think for generations, uh, you know, we just had these rules like, oh, don't have sex outside of marriage, and it's like, well, I like, why not? You know, like, and and we didn't have a good explanation of why not, and so that's part of the problem. And so, in Paul's culture at this time, um, if you were married, uh, it wasn't considered adultery if you had sex with a prostitute or with a slave. So you could have sex with a slave or a prostitute as much as you wanted to if you were married, and there's nothing wrong with that. And then, of course, if you were a good Roman citizen, you would worship the gods. And the worship of the fertility gods involved going to the temple. And the way that you'd worship the fertility goddesses is that you would have uh, sex with the, uh, with the female priests of this goddess. That was an obligation that you'd have to worship these goddesses to be able to receive their blessings upon your crops and upon your family and things like that.
and, and obviously you'd be expected to do that, so that wouldn't be considered adultery as well. And so in these, in these Roman cities that Paul is proclaiming the gospel, um, there was a huge amount of immorality. And Paul is making a point that in Christianity it's supposed to be incredibly different. Our standards of, uh, of morality should be exemplary to the world, right? It, and, and, and actually in our world right now, if you are a, are a virgin when you get married, that's pretty exemplary right? If you uh, live your marriage vows for your entire life, that is the exception. That is like, oh my goodness, that's, a, that's incredible. Uh, you've been married how long, right? And, and that's what Paul is talking about. And so he says, so you abstain from fornication. You, you abstain, some translations say, immorality, so that it's kind of broadened out. Uh, and then he says that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. It's interesting that Paul is saying uh, our bodies are under our control and they should be, right? And of course, anytime that you have an addiction, it doesn't matter what kind of an addiction it is, whether it's uh, you know, sex or alcohol or food or the internet, uh, you know, like whatever, it means you're not in control right? Something else is in control, some sort of chemical reaction and your body's under control, some, you know, like your hormones are under your, uh, is in control, like whatever it is, right? Your woundedness, your brokenness is in control. And so, yeah, Paul isn't condemning people, right? He's, he's setting, here's the standard. And so, like in my brokenness, there are times when I'm not in control, right, of my of my body and holiness and honor the way that I should be. But that is my, that's my goal. That's what I'm striving for. That's what I, I want. See, you see the difference here is that, that, that a, a huge function, uh, a section of our society, including in Christianity, I've lowered the standards. It's like, oh, obviously that's an impossible standard, so let's just lower the standard and so that everybody feels welcome and everybody feels good and let's give a trophy to everybody. And, and, and you have to understand that is not what Paul proclaimed when he was proclaiming the gospel. In every one of his letters over and over, he says this same thing. In, in, uh, in Galatians and in Corinthians, he says it very explicitly. People who commit fornication, adultery, homosexuality, uh, homosexuality have no place in the kingdom of God. Now, what he's saying, uh, obviously he's not judging individual souls and that doesn't, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't take that as like, oh, my, the, the, the people who I love who are practicing those things are hopeless and they're going to go to hell. Uh, that's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that there's a standard here. God judges our hearts, right? When we come before the judgment seat of Christ, we come there as individuals and God knows our hearts. And so, uh, but he is saying, this is, this is the standard, right? This is what we're shooting for. This is what we should be striving for. This is what we should be proclaiming. And so he goes on, not with lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, um, the Gentiles who are led around with the passions of their bodies. 
right? They're not in control of their bodies. Their bodies are in control of them. And Paul's saying that's not how it should be. They are that way because they don't know God. But you know God. And that should make all the difference in the world, right? He says, and this is, uh, this is a very serious scripture. He says that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter. Okay, so you are saw, okay, what, what's the matter, right? The matter is sexuality, right? And so you have this this the sexual standard, and when you when you read through, uh, I mean, like Jesus says, when you if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? And so this isn't just about actions; it also has to do with the purity of our hearts. He says that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because he says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. In other words, the Lord is going to bring justice. And that uh, any time, this is how I understand this passage, any time that we're um, involved in sexual activity or sexual desires, or and I think we can expand this out to other areas of our lives, um, in a way that is not holy then we are going to be in the area of doing wrong to a brother or a sister or exploiting our brother or sister. And, and you remember when Jesus says, uh, it would be better, rather than causing one of these little ones to sin, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. You remember that? I mean, see, this is the... This is the seriousness that that Paul is communicating here, and it's and and to me again, it's not like this is all oh, this is a, like a, this little religious thing. This comes out of Paul's Jewishness. Uh, it's like no, Paul is saying this is about the Lord, and and he is going to see that justice is done for every single person. Every single sexual abuse person, every single person who uh, has been exploited in any way or shape or form, sexually or in slavery or in, you know, uh, financially, like the Lord is going to bring perfect justice because he's an avenger. Um, and then he says just as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So Paul is saying, listen, I'm just reviewing what I've already told you, right? This was part of his proclamation. So, so here's the thing. Uh, it seems to me that, that in the church you have these two uh, groups of people. You have a group of people who are very, uh, what, what, you know, you could label them like traditional or whatever. And so they're they're, you know, they would, you know, be really strict around this morality thing. And then you have another group of people, and that's kind of their emphasis, is kind of like keeping the rules. And then you have uh, another group of people who are all about love, and they love, 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 love. And, uh, and they are very loving people. My interactions with them is that they are very loving. They care for the poor. Uh, they're very into social work and all, uh, social uh, ministry. Uh, but 
they they don't have any kind of standard around morality. It's all about like we should just love people right where they're at and accept them. Um, in fact, I, I just today listening to the news, I, I heard an Episcopalian bishop talk about um, that you know that it's that the church has evolved into being able to accept homosexuality and uh, and that you know that uh, it's that, that this is about the message of love and how God loves everybody. And it's like no no no. It's like it's like. It, it, just because he loves everybody doesn't mean the standard disappears. Just because there's a standard and people don't keep the standard doesn't mean that we can't love them. And so somehow, like Paul is is having this exhortation where he's saying, like, like no, 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 here's the standard, and it's very clear, and you have to uphold it. It has to be part of the proclamation of the gospel. It has to be part of the repentance of coming into the kingdom. And at the same time, uh, as we saw in chapter 3, and as we'll see in a minute, we should be abounding, overflowing with love. We should be the most loving people on the planet. People should look at us and say, oh my gosh, they have so much love, right? But without compromising the truth. Paul says it in Ephesians, he says, preach the truth in love. And so, um, <clears throat> he says, for God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. And, and so it's, it's important to realize uh, this is in the context. Bef at the end of chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 4, uh, kind of like a sandwich, like the bread of a sandwich, this, uh, this is in the context of the coming of Christ. Right? That's, that's really, uh, you know, what... This is the, the meat in between the sandwich. But the sandwich is Christ is coming back. We're being prepared for eternity. We are being prepared for the divine life. The, the message of the gospel is that I, am, I become one with Christ, and Christ brings me into the very life of the Trinity. Brings me into the very life of pure holiness and pure love. Both of those things. And so Paul is, you know, this isn't just some generic, like, oh, like, follow the rules, right? It is a, no, no, this is an important part of how we are going to be for all of eternity. And in fact, the way that we have to be able to be in order to be in heaven, right? To be able to share the divine life. He says, therefore, whoever rejects this, rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul's saying, listen, if you don't like what I'm teaching, you're not rejecting me, right? You are rejecting the authority of God. I think this is, a, this is kind of a, you know, a little side note. Remember when Paul, last chapter, was saying, um, you know, we weren't trying to be popular, right? We weren't, um, uh, you know, trying to win over people and... We weren't trying to please men. That's the phrase he uses. And so at the same time, when we, when we stand firm in this, especially in our current culture, and we say, like, homosexuality is wrong, right? Gender, uh, gender transformations is wrong, right? Uh, even, you know, like, we don't even say this anymore, but living together is wrong, right? Sex outside of marriage is wrong. 
the the society looks at us like we've got three heads, right? Or it's like, oh, like what's wrong with you? You know, like you're you're a dinosaur or something. And it's like, no, no, no. This is this is the eternal truth. This is the reality. And when people reject that, they're not rejecting us, right? They're not rejecting. It's like no, like you're rejecting the authority of God Himself. You're rejecting the truth of how we are supposed to live as human beings to enter into the fullness of life and to, to really be happy, to really find uh, contentment, to really get what you need emotionally and spiritually and physically. And so Paul makes this, this emphasis that it's not him, it's the Lord. So now Paul shifts gears. So he, he's, he reminds them of what he's been teaching them, what he taught them about morality. And so now he says, concerning the love of brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you. <laughs> it's kind of funny because Paul says, like, like, no one needs to write to you about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and so you, you think, okay, you think about what this, what Paul's saying. Remember he, at the beginning he said, um, at the beginning of this chapter, he said, I'm going to write to you about, or, or I'm going to exhort you and beg you to live the way that we taught you how to live, and, uh, and, and that you should do so. You should seek the sanctification more and more, right? And, and so he's saying, like, you're doing good. You just need to do it more and more. Let me remind you what that looks like. And now he's shifting his gear to love. And it's interesting to me that in this little sandwich that we have of Paul giving instructions, you know, so he has the, he reviews the relationship with them, he gives them instructions, and then he shifts gears to answer uh, some concerns that they, that he has about them. And so, uh, that, that the, the thing that he puts in that sandwich of the second coming of the Lord is morality and love. And so he says, uh, no one needs to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Which, which I think is Paul's way of saying, like, um, he expresses it in Romans, that part of encountering God is having your heart filled with the love of the Father, right? That the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. John expresses it by saying, um, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we can be called the children of God. Um, and so, so Paul is saying, You yourselves have been taught by God. Like, you've had your hearts filled with love, and it's overflowed uh, into, into the lives of the people around you. And he says, now concerning love of the brothers and sisters. Oh my goodness, I already read that. Um, he says, but I urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. Isn't that funny? That's the same phrase he used about morality and living in a way to please God. Now he's using it in terms of love. And so, and again, you have this, like it doesn't matter how, uh, you know, you're always in this process of sanctification. You're always in the process of increasing your capacity to love, right? And so that you can learn to love, yeah, I mean, it's easy to love people that you like, and it's easy to love family members, uh, and, and of course the challenge of the gospel is, no, no, you got to learn to love people who are unlovable, right? You have to learn to love your enemies. You have to learn to love those who even persecute you, to be 
to con be concerned about their eternal well-being, their their uh, you know their humanity, their dignity as human beings, and so this this process. See, and in that process, we are becoming more like God. We are becoming we're becoming holy with Him, and we're becoming pure love, pure holiness, and pure love. We are becoming like God, which is what, of course, the goal is. And finally, Paul ends this little section by saying, to aspire to live quietly. Right? Not boisterously or loudly. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Right? <laughs> Mind your own business. Uh, and, and when you think, it, you know, I, I guess for me, I think it's like the the gossip and the news and the have you heard and what about this and what about that. It's like, no, 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 like focus on your own life. Focus on what you, the, the sphere of influence that you have. Um, work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and be dependent on no one. It's interesting that Paul uh, uses that word outsiders, right? Which basically says, like, we're, you know, he's 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 distinguishing them as a group of people. He's distinguishing them as the church, and he's saying the church should behave properly towards outsiders. In other words, we always all all of us always has to be aware that we are representing Christ in this world, right? And so. Um, you know, we're all human, and so we're going to have bad days, and we're going to have grumpy days, and we're going to have days when we have to deal with anger, or we have to deal with our wound woundedness, and we all have our uh, our own defense mechanisms and all of that stuff. But Paul is saying, like, that, that's what the process of sanctification is, right? And so when I have a day where I'm not loving, I, I have an opportunity to, to look at that and say, okay, how could I how could I do this better, right? And I have a, a day where... Um, um, you know, I don't treat people the way they want to, or I, I'm not in control of my emotions the way I want to be, where I am angry or judgmental or uh, give in to the worldly way of thinking or, you know, whatever it is, that we constantly have this opportunity to be more and more. And, and part of that is how we, tr we are um, treating people who are outside the church because everything we do is a witness, right? When, and, and whenever you're going to begin having conversations with, um, with people who are outsiders, one of the things that they're going to say is that the church is full of hypocrites, right? Have you ever heard that line? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and it's true, right? Some of the, some of the most ardent um, atheists that I have talked to are the ones who are most wounded by religious people, right? That if, if that's what it means to be a Christian, right? If that's what it means to have faith or to believe in God, then I don't want any part of that God, right? Um, which is just legitimate, right? right? Because they're not, in those behaviors and those actions and those words, they're not representing the reality of who God is. And so it's, it's so again, this idea of we're being called, being called to holiness, we're being called to love, 
We're being called to do those things because it's a preparation for eternal life. We're being called to do those things because that is where we find the abundant life. That is where we find our hope and peace and joy. And it's also uh, being called to that because we are the light of the world. And therefore, our lives, in order to be the light of the world, it, it has to be different from the darkness of the world. Right? Light is obvious. It can be seen. And that's what that, that's the, that, what that analogy is pointing to, is that people should ha have a sense. Remember when uh, Peter is writing his letter, he says, uh, always be ready to give an answer for the reason for your hope. Which kind of pre uh, presupposes that someone's going to ask you, why are you so different? Why can you, how can you have hope when this world is so messed up? We can have hope because of God who loves us and calls us into his very life with love and grace towards us and invites us to share that life. And so I, I just wanted to uh, say that we're, we're leaving off in the middle of chapter 4. Remember we said uh, chapters aren't inspired. So Paul gives these instructions, live holy live with love, and then he switches gears and begins to talk about the second coming of Christ. And, and he spends the last few verses of chapter 4 talking about the second coming of Christ, and then continues into chapter 5. And so what we're going to do is start in the middle of chapter 4 uh, with the second coming of Christ and go into chapter 5. And so next week's lesson will, all, will be all about uh, Paul uh, exhorting and, and helping the Thessalonians understand the second coming of the Lord. Uh, so that'll be exciting. Hope you're uh, able to join us. Uh, we'd love to have your feedback at uh, evangelizeme.com if you'd like to write. And finally, I'd like to just take a moment to thank uh, the generous people who support us every month. Um, there are uh, lots of you, and some of you have been doing it for a long time, and some of you are incredibly generous. And if it wasn't for your support and your help, then we wouldn't be able to do the things that we're doing. And so I just wanted to acknowledge um, uh, those gifts and those people. And thank you from the bottoms of our hearts. Um, and if you'd like to, uh, to help with this effort, feel free to uh, visit us at uh, www.evangelizeme.org. And there's a, a little donate button there that you're uh, welcome to push. Thanks for listening. Look forward to joining you soon as we look to the second coming of our blessed Lord Jesus. God bless you.